Let's open the precious word of God to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. It was a year ago that I preached to you from the second half of this chapter two messages entitled, Your Body is the Lord's. And we looked at everything from abortion to cremation to baptism to cosmetic surgery and so forth and so on of all the things that are done with the human body in this world to see how they measure up against the Word of God because Jesus Christ is the Lord of your body. Your body is not yours. You didn't make it. Your body is not yours. He has purchased it. Your body is not yours because it's not just an empty house that you dwell in. The Holy Spirit of God is within you. And so we're going to see that again today as we come to the second half of the chapter, but we want to cover the first half first. Remember, last week we looked at 1 Corinthians 5, and it's the chapter that teaches us how a church is to judge public sinners. 1 Corinthians chapter 6 introduces how members should be able to settle private disputes between themselves in the first eight verses. And so the two chapters are set by the Holy Spirit next to each other, the one dealing with the large, scandalous sins against God, and the next one dealing with the private matters of personal offense. And there they are. If you can find your way to 1 Corinthians 5 and 6, you're taught an awful lot about church judgment. Let's break this chapter into three sections. The first eight verses describe how we settle personal and private differences between church members. Verses 9 through 11 describe the characters of the kingdom of heaven and who shall inherit heaven and those that will surely not. And how that though we were all sinners, Christ has prepared his elect to be able to enter into heaven. And then verses 12 through 20 describe the fact that our bodies are not our own and we're to live in a very disciplined way in this world so that we please God with our body and with our spirit. And hopefully we'll end up with verse 20. And verse 20 will be the verse from this chapter that you take home to realize this is something for me to do this week. And that is to glorify God in my body and in my spirit because they are not truly mine, they are His. Let's start with the first eight verses, and I'm going to read them to you. Dare any of you, having a matter against another, go to law before the unjust and not before the saints? Do ye not know that the saints shall judge the world? And if the world shall be judged by you, are ye unworthy to judge the smallest matters? Know ye not that we shall judge angels? How much more things that pertain to this life? If then ye have judgments of things pertaining to this life, set them to judge who are least esteemed in the church. I speak to your shame. Is it so that there is not a wise man among you? No, not one that shall be able to judge between his brethren? But brother goeth to law with brother and that before the unbelievers. Now therefore there is utterly a fault among you, because ye go to law one with another. Why do ye not rather take wrong? 
Why do ye not rather suffer yourselves to be defrauded? Nay, ye do wrong and defraud, and that your brethren. The Lord will bless the reading and preaching of his word, and I pray that you will listen to it, because this is the word of the living God. To take your brother in this assembly to small claims court or to sue him at law is an offense of sin against God. Flat out, can't do it, and you'll be just thrown out of here. We don't care what the cause is. We don't care what the case is. You'll just be thrown out, and you can work it out outside the church because we don't want you. God doesn't want you. The Apostle Paul didn't want you. We don't want you. Now, there's several, there's several ways that we can solve a problem that come up between members. But one of those ways is not going to the courts of this world. That's right. And so that's what the Apostle is teaching here. Now, if you ever wanted a lesson in rhetorical speech, are there a few questions in this passage? Yep. See, questions are very powerful ways of communicating. And he's, he's mocking and ridiculing the Corinthians for going before unbelievers to settle their small disputes. So he mocks them with questions. And you're going to see that as we progress. His first thing is, his first question is, dare any of you? You've got to be kidding me. You Corinthians are going before unbelievers to settle your disputes? You're going before the unjust? Notice what he calls them. He slips in a little descriptive statement little descriptor word of the world, of the wicked. He calls them the unjust because they don't really know a sense of justice compared to the word of God. Amen. True justice is found in the word of God, so he calls them the unjust. Why would you go to an unjust judge to get justice for how you've been wronged? That's a ridiculous idea. Verse 1. Now, when he says having a matter against another, see, that tells us something right there. We read our Bibles and we try to see the sense of the words. Having a matter against another. Now, in chapter 5, was it a matter against another or was it a matter against God? God. It was a matter against God. Of course, there were people violated by it, but God doesn't care about them. When a sin is against God, the offense against God is far greater than any number of men or women that are hurt by the sin. That's why David would say in Psalm 51, against thee, and thee only have I sinned. Well, that's, that wasn't totally true, because he had sinned against Uriah. He had sinned against Bathsheba. He had sinned against the whole nation in certain respects. He had sinned against his family by giving a horrible example to his sons. And so we could line up many more parties that were hurt by David's sin. But David understood that sin is primarily against God. And that was chapter 5. There was a man whose wife was being taken by his son. Right? But see, that was a sin against God because God has said fornication and adultery are wrong. But here it says, having a matter against another. Dare any. When we have any, that's one. Any of you. Any one person of you having a matter against another which is another one party. So it's two parties in the church that have a problem between themselves. That's what he's dealing with in these eight verses. And it says, having a matter. Now by cheating and looking ahead to verse 2, it tells us the smallest matters. Paul just makes fun of them. Because anything that you two can do to each other are small matters. 
You say, well, I can think of some pretty horrible sins. Still a small matter. Now, those, those things can become big matters against God, but it's still a small matter as far as this life is concerned. It's still a small matter in light of eternity. These are things against brothers. But then he, Paul calls them the smallest matters, and then he calls them in verse 3, things that pertain to this life. You know, it's not a spiritual sin because how can you do that against a brother? It's a personal offense. It's a thing of this world that you do against someone. Examples that I've used in the past were things like you loan a brother your jigsaw. I've used it for 20 years. I'm going to keep on using it. I'm not good at illustrations, and I don't ever want to get good at them. But if you, if you loaned your brother a jigsaw, when you got it back, the power cord was torn off it. We've got a problem. Now, that is a small matter between brothers. I don't care if the jigsaw cost you $19.95 because you bought junk at Walmart. I don't care if it cost you $119.95 because you bought it at a real tool store. And I don't care if it cost you $419.95 because it was a professional tool doesn't matter. It's still a small thing. And that's what's being dealt with right here. We've got a brother who gets his jigsaw back and the power cord's ripped off. What is he going to do about it? He's not going to go to small claims court. That's out for the New Testament. That's out for a band of brothers called saints in the church of Jesus Christ. These, this is what we're dealing with. We're dealing with someone opening their car door in the parking lot, nicking your car. You go get an estimate on it, and it's $100 to have your door repainted. That's a small matter of this life. More likely in this church, it's someone's teenager backing out and backing into your car door. Then it could be an estimate of $300 or $400 or more. Small matters. Let's see how we're to deal with them. He starts off by saying, dare any of you? Dare any of you go to the unjust to get justice? Ridiculous. Why don't you go before the saints? Verse 2. Do ye not know that the saints shall judge the world? And if the world shall be judged by you, are ye unworthy to judge the smallest matters? In, compar- in comparison to being with Jesus Christ in the day of judgment and judging the world with him, we will agree in the sentence with the Lord Jesus Christ, that they deserve to go to hell. We are going to judge in matters that great. If we're going to judge in matters like that, what in the world are we having a problem dealing with the jigsaw power cord for? That's the apostles' reasoning in verse 2. It's, it's absurd. Let's look at a few verses about this judgment that's coming. Look at Jude with me. I'll just look at a couple. I want to be, I want to be as, move as efficiently as we can this morning. The book of Jude, next to the last book of your Bible. A prophecy that I've already mentioned this morning, but now I want to show it to you so that you can read it. Even though Enoch was the seventh from Adam and lived 3,500 years before Jude, Jude wrote it down for the first time in Scripture. We go to to verse 14 of the, the little book of Jude. And Enoch also, the seventh from Adam, prophesied of these... When he says these, that's a pronoun referring to the wicked men that are going to hell in the verses preceding it. He prophesied of these, saying, Behold, the Lord cometh with ten thousands of his saints 
to execute judgment upon all and to convince all that are ungodly among them of all their ungodly deeds which they have ungodly committed and of all their hard speeches which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. Jesus Christ is coming. The Lord, behold, the Lord cometh with ten thousands of his saints. We're coming with him. Saints, angels, there's, there's sanctified angels. There are holy angels. They're called saints in the Bible. We are sanctified sinners. We're called saints in the Bible. We're all coming back with the Lord Jesus Christ. I'll show you that in a moment. We're all coming back and look at the purpose together. We're going to judge ungodly men for all their ungodly deeds and all their ungodly words that they have spoken against the Lord. Life is serious. We are not in this world for some little game down here for 70 years to play around. Life is very serious. We have been given life and existence and an eternal soul. And that soul had better be committed to the Lord God that created it or there will be trouble in hell to pay later. All God commands all men everywhere to repent. The fact that they do not because they have hearts so hardened in rebellion and hatred of God does not excuse them in the least. But God commands all men to repent and instead many men raise their voices against God and they'll be judged for it. Flip over a few pages to Revelation 6. Let's see the attitude of some of the saints that have already gone to heaven. I hope that you can hear these things with spiritual understanding and hold them in your heart. We are about to read the attitude of the highest level of saints, those that laid down their lives for the cause of Jesus Christ. In heaven, where they are glorified in his presence, what is their attitude toward the Catholic Church on earth? We're about to read it. Is it, Lord, let me go back and tell them about the love of Jesus? No, listen to this. Revelation 6 and verse 9. And when he had opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of them that were slain for the word of God and for the testimony which they held. And they cried with a loud voice, saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, dost thou not judge and avenge our blood on them that dwell on the earth? And white robes were given unto every one of them, And it was said unto them that they should rest yet for a little season until their fellow servants also and their brethren that should be killed as they were should be fulfilled. That is the attitude of the martyrs in heaven right there. What I want you to notice is that the conversation in heaven is hinting at this future day of judgment that's coming. We've got to let more of your brothers get killed first. And then when every martyr has been killed, then... This is going to come. Chapter 19. Chapter 19. Yes, this is all. These are all figurative pictures. But these figurative pictures are presenting to us spiritual and eternal and heavenly realities. Revelation 19. These are verses that we love. But what I want you to be looking for in here is where you fit into this picture. I hope you love these verses. Let me take, let me chase a short rabbit. I want you to remember, I taught it to you last Sunday night, but don't forget, why is there a crucifix in every Catholic home? Why is there a crucifix in every Catholic church, on every Catholic altar, in every Catholic hospital room, and every Catholic has to die with one between his hands on his chest? 
because they are infatuated and obsessed with the devil's idea of Jesus Christ. And that is him hanging in shame and pain and apparent defeat on the cross of Calvary. They want a defeated Jesus because that's what the devil wants. The Bible tells us that the doctrines of the Roman Catholic Church are the doctrines of devils. 1 Timothy chapter 4. This should not surprise anyone. So we have the devil behind everything about the Catholic Church. It is another Jesus to his liking. One that is on the cross, a loser. One with long hair, which is a shame for a man to have long hair. One writhing in pain on a cross. They leave him there. And they have carried that thing around for 1,500 years and held it in the face of believers as they burned them at the stake. Those blasphemous perverts called Catholic priests have held their stinking little crucifix, which is the sign of a curse in the Bible. Cursed is everyone that hangeth on a tree. Anybody that wears a cross on their chest and thinks that they're wearing something good, they're wearing the sign of a curse. God said that is the sign of a curse. There's no blessing in that stupid thing. They want him crucified on a cross, and they want him hanging there in shame and pain and defeat. Now let me read you. I'm going to read you a picture. Why doesn't the Catholic Church, since they're so in love with images, they're so in love with images because they're, my, they're very simple. They're the simplest people on earth. When you go among the nations and find a Catholic nation, you have found the dumbest nation. nation in, nations in poverty. They don't know how to advance because they had to assassinate their mind in order to be a Catholic. When you're eating a cracker and you look at it, you look at it under a, a magnifying glass, you look at it under a microscope, it's still a cracker. You smell it, it's still a cracker. You can crumble it in your hand, it's still a cracker. You can listen to it and it sounds like a cracker. You can eat it and it tastes like a cracker. If you haven't eaten anything else, it's going to come out in the draft just like a cracker. And they tell you, this is God. This is the body, blood, soul, and divinity. Now see, those, those aren't just trite words that I quote to you. I always tell you exactly what they believe. Right. The cracker becomes the body, the blood, the soul, and the divinity of Jesus Christ. The fullness of the Godhead in that cracker. Now, for a man to believe that, he has to assassinate his senses. So once you've assassinated your senses, your nation is not going to amount to much at all. You're going to wander around, crawling through streets with crosses on your back in abject poverty because you have assassinated the gift of reason, the gift of intellectual thinking and creative design which by which the Lord brings witty inventions into the world. Give me a Japanese who's not, who's not going around believing a cracker's God. He'll invent a few things. Give me a Mexican who thinks that a cracker is God. He isn't going to invent anything. I'm, you know, I'm not... Listen, I love them both. Listen, I had a Mexican work on my basement that was a stud of studs. I bought him and his whole crew lunch because he was so awesome at what he did. He was very skilled at his trade, but his trade was, a, you know, was, was not all that involved in witty inventions. Okay, I'm chasing. That was a long rabbit trail. We've got to come back. They love images. The reason is, once you've assassinated your mind, you have a group of simple people. 
to keep those simple people happy, all you have to do is flash up flashcards in front of them, and they get very excited. If you can flash up a crucifix in front of them, or a priest comes out in a fancy robe, or someone can play fancy music on an organ, see, it comes in the ears, it comes in the nose, the incense, they get to taste it, they get to see it. They're very simple. So you flash up flashcards, and they get all excited about their God. You take them into a big fancy building by which you made everybody poor in that village. You take all the money from the poor people so that they're living in huts. The squalor of Catholic nations is unbelievable. But you take them into this great big church where they can see and they think they've met God. Totally contrary to the New Testament. But since they love images, why don't they want an image of a white horse with blood dripping off this white horse and seated on the back of this horse is one magnificent prince? Because the Bible tells us what he looks like. What Jesus looked like on on the cross, there is no statement about his eye color. But I know the eye color of the one on the horse. Can anyone help me with the eye color of the one on the white horse? Like a flame of fire. What color is his hair? White as wool. What is his name and where is it hanging? The word of God on his thigh. And what is his title? King of kings and Lord of lords. Now listen, if I went into a Catholic home and saw that on the fireplace mantle... I'd say, we just might have a believer in here. A believer that's really ignorant, that makes images, but at least they've got an image of the Lord Jesus Christ. Not him writhing on a cross. He hasn't been there in 2,000 years. But his horse is chomping at the bit. What's coming out of that prince's mouth? A sharp two-edged sword. Now that's a picture. Okay, I'm going to read it. You figure out where you are in the picture. Verse 11 of Revelation 19, And I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. And he that sat upon him was called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he doth judge and make war. <clears throat> this is different, isn't it? Amen. This is a little different than a crucifix. Amen. In righteousness he doth judge and make war. The Bible is a book full of war. And there's one great big war yet to be fought. Got to figure out where you are. You don't want to be under his hoofs. His eyes were as a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns. What a picture. And he had a name written that no man knew but he himself. And he was clothed with a vesture dipped in blood. And his name is called the Word of God. And the armies which were in heaven followed him upon white horses, clothed in fine linen, white and clean. And out of his mouth goeth a sharp sword, that with it he should smite the nations, and he shall rule them with a rod of iron, and he treadeth the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. And he hath on his vesture and on his thigh a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. That's all I'm going to read. That's a wonderful picture. And that is who we are worshiping this morning. And you had better humble yourself before that word picture that's given to us. We don't need anyone to try to draw it. We don't want to see it. We don't want anyone to try to form a statue or an image of it. We don't want any sort of likeness. We want words. God has chosen to communicate by words. And only intelligent, regenerate elect can understand that description. But that description with words is enough for the regenerate elect to understand. 
If we have a picture, then we bring in all the unregenerate, we bring in all the non-elect, because anyone would get excited at that picture if it was turned into an image. But we understand it by the words. That is a word picture of the power and glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. Did you find yourself? I found me. Did you find you? I found me in verse 14. And I found you in verse 14 too. And the armies which were in heaven followed him upon white horses, clothed in fine linen, white and clean. What is, what is an outfit of fine white linen and clean? The righteousness of the saints. Yep. These are the saints of God coming in judgment with the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I've just spent so much time on that one. I'm going to overlook the rest except to tell you this. When we're born again as the elect of God, when we're chosen in Christ Jesus, we are his. But when we are born again, we are brought into a vital union with Jesus Christ himself. Do you know what the Bible says? That we have been raised up together and made sit to sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Amen. You say, tell me more. I wish I could. I can tell you that Ephesians 2.6 tells us that we are raised up in Jesus Christ just like he was raised up. There is now a vital union between our spirits, the new man in us, and Jesus Christ. He dwells in us, and we are for all spiritual purposes with him on the throne of heaven. That is how real it is after regeneration occurs and a man has the new man. The Bible teaches us that, and it teaches us that in more than one place. It says in Hebrews chapter 2 that we are all of one. Jesus Christ, by dying for us, has made us all of one, whereby he is not ashamed to call them brethren. We are brothers of the Lord Jesus Christ. Do you think he's going to have his brothers in his army? You bet he is. Brother, doesn't this, doesn't this move your soul? Yeah, amen. If it doesn't move your soul, why'd you stay up so late last night? Why'd you watch so many cartoons yesterday? What'd you do all week? This should move your soul. We are with Jesus Christ in heavenly places by the Spirit. And he is with us by the Spirit. And we are going to be in that army following him in the righteousness that he's given all of his saints. Back to 1 Corinthians 6. Oh, before you come back, since we're close, look back in Jude, because I want to show you the next verse that we will judge angels. There's more that can be said, but I hope I've said enough to get your attention, that we will judge the world. The Lord, God Almighty, is not going to ask us, what do you think of this sinner? I mean, we personally are not going to make choices with the weakness of our flesh. We'll be glorified then, but we are going to be in agreement and participating with the Lord Jesus Christ at the front of his army. That's a word picture. We will be participating and agreeing with Jesus Christ that that judgment is righteous judgment that is being executed. And it will include angels. Because angels are not yet judged. They've had the, sent, it had, the sentence hasn't been executed. The sentence has been declared, but it hasn't been executed yet. You know, that happens in our nation. You know, someone goes up for sentencing... And it can be a day, a week, a month, a year. Multiple years before it's executed. What's the average time on death row? Six or seven years. Six or seven years, average time on death row. They're, they're, they're found guilty of a crime, a capital offense, and yet before it's ever executed, it averages about seven years. Here it is with the angels. Look at it. Jude, verse 6. And the angels which kept not their first estate, but left their own habitation, 
he hath reserved in everlasting chains under darkness unto the judgment of the great day. Sentence has been issued against them. You angels are going to hell. Now they knew it was coming. Remember when they were when Jesus was on earth? They'd run up to him and say, Art thou come to torment us before our time? They know it's coming. They know there's a day coming in which this sentence will be executed, and Jesus Christ, a man, is going to execute it against him, which is unbelievable. That God has raised up a man to execute judgment against him. But do you know what's even more unbelievable? We're going to be right beside him. You know, they, if the Lord steps back for just a moment, they can take us at their will. 2 Timothy 2.26 David, my brother. David, my brother, was taken at their will. Peter was taken at their will. Hezekiah was taken at their will. Job was taken at their will when God stepped back. But I want to tell you, brethren, we're going to be with the Lord Jesus Christ and we're going to pronounce judgment on that hated enemy of Jesus Christ and of our Father in heaven. Come back to 1 Corinthians 6. I just figured out why I take too long. I enjoy rabbit trails too much. But I hope that that picture in Revelation 19 stirs your soul. And when you look at this movie that's come out or you look at a Roman crucifix, you will see the enormous difference between where Catholics want to put Jesus and where the Bible puts Jesus. And that picture is mentioned throughout the epistles in the language when it says, He hath been raised up far above all principalities and powers. That's referring to the angelic realm. Jesus Christ has been promoted over all of it. See, that's ignored when you look at a crucifix. 1 Corinthians 6. Verse 2 said, Do ye not know that the saints shall judge the world? Well, we just saw that. We're going to come with Jesus Christ and judge the world. And if the world shall be judged by you, are ye unworthy to judge the smallest matters? You can't figure out a missing power cord off a jigsaw when you're going to judge the world? Verse 3, Know ye not that we shall judge angels? How much more things that pertain to this life? If we're going to judge angels, it should be easy to figure out what to do about a dented car door. Verse 4, If then ye have judgments of things pertaining to this life, set them to judge who are least esteemed in the church. This is an ironical, sarcastic statement. Who are the least esteemed in our church? They're going to be our youngest children that are church members. They are not capable of of doing good church judgment yet in small matters. They're not wise enough, and they're not experienced enough yet. This is sarcasm. This is sarcasm by the apostle. He's saying, if then ye have judgments, if things come up that pertain to this life, you, you just might as well go ahead and set the least esteemed members in the church to figure it out. Because the least esteemed in the church should be better than those outside the church. If the church is going to judge angels in the world, surely the least esteemed in the church should be able to handle it. Right. Say, how do you know it's irony? Because the least esteemed in the church can't do it. Number one. Number two, because of the next sentence. I speak to your shame. He's shaming them in his speech because of the way that they're handling these disputes by going outside the church to the world. And then he tells us what kind of a person ought to be looked for. I speak to your shame. Is it not so that there is not a wise man among you? Is it not a wise man among you? No, not one that shall be able to judge between his brethren. 
If we had a matter come up in the church, we wouldn't actually go for the youngest children that we had baptized and taken in as church members to solve it. He's sarcastically rebuking them for their foolishness in going outside the church when there's so many competent judges in the church. And he specifies what he means by that by telling them that he shamed them in the next verse and pointing out, can't you find one? Now remember what church he's talking to. This church at Corinth had all sorts of teachers, all sorts of ministerial gifts, and they were all very excited and proud of all their ministerial gifts. And here Paul is saying, what in the world's going on? You're going outside, can't you find even one wise man that's able to figure out what to do about a missing power cord on a jigsaw? Come on. That's what he's doing to them. I speak to your shame. You ought to be ashamed of yourselves. The way that you're handling differences and disputes in the church. Verse 6. But brother goeth to law with brother, and that before the unbelievers. Now, how are we supposed to judge these kind of smallest matters? Come to Matthew 18. Let's look at it very quickly. The Lord Jesus Christ taught us exactly how we're supposed to do it. Exactly how you should handle a difference if you're a weak person. So far, we're only dealing with weak people. Weak people that want you want your car door painted by a brother. You want a, the jigsaw replaced by a brother. The only person that would want that is a weak person, and I'm going to say that loud and clear. You're weak. You're inglorious, and you're a pretty pitiful church member. Paul will teach that in 1 Corinthians 6, and it's taught elsewhere in the Bible. Because if you had a heart at all that was like the Lord's, you just overlooked the stupid thing. You say, well, at what point is it no longer stupid? Well, when it takes your life. You know, when it takes your life and it's no longer stupid, then you can take it up with the Lord. You know, why do we get so upset about all these little things that don't matter? What if someone goes out and takes a knife, you know, one of the kids goes out and just slashes the seats to to death in your vehicle? Does it really affect your relationship with God? Now, there might be a lesson that needs to be taught in it, so you go to the parents and say, listen, that child needs to come over and cut my grass for a few decades so that we we can pay off those seats. But why does everybody get so stirred up about little things? But here's how we're supposed to do it. If you have a little soul and a little heart... And you get torqued when somebody dents your car door. I want you to know that you are little in the sight of God. Here's what you do. Matthew 18, verse 15. Moreover, if thy brother shall trespass against thee, go and tell him his fault between thee and him alone. You keep it private. You don't tell anyone else about it. You don't go home and tell your whole family that you know who dented your car door. You've just sinned in a major sin against God for a little thing that doesn't matter. And that is how little souls work. The little soul comes out and sees that his car door is dented. On the way home, he rails on the church member that he knew dented his car door in front of his whole family, which is whispering and tail-bearing and a sin against God. That's how little souls work. Because they've never been able to think higher than their mud hut and their buffalo chips for supper. That's why they're worried about their car door. And yes, I'm upset. It makes me ill because a church could get along just fine if everyone in it had a noble soul like a little tiny bit of the Lord Jesus Christ. Do you know what the Lord Jesus Christ suffered because of you? Do you know what others suffer because you're even a member of this church? 
Why in the world would you get upset and then rail on a brother on the way home in front of your kids? And then you tell a few other people because you're a whiner, you're a complainer, you're a negative person. You'd enjoy hell better than heaven because you like to look on the negative. This is what you do. Tell him his fault between thee and him alone. Do you know what alone means? It means you don't tell your family. Do you know what alone means? It means you don't tell your friends. Do you really know what alone means? It, tell, it means you tell one other person. All alone. One. All. One. Alone. Only one. If he shall hear thee. Now what does that pronoun there, thee, mean? A group of people or one person? One. If he shall hear thee, thou hast gained thy brother singular. We are talking about two people and only two people ever knowing about it. And if a third person finds out about it that didn't know about it otherwise, you have sinned by tailbearing and whispering. There is no purpose for it. You have destroyed and assassinated and raped someone else's character. It doesn't matter if it's true. Truth doesn't have a thing to do with talking about other people. That doesn't have a thing to do with it. If it's not true, it's slander. If it is true, it's tailbearing, backbiting, and whispering. Now, there's three sins in the Bible when you tell the truth about someone. And there's only one sin in the Bible when you lie about them. When you lie about them, it's slander. When you tell the truth about them, it's backbiting, tailbearing, and whispering. Do you understand that? Amen. I have heard, li- listen, there's minds that are only that big. You can discover them in different ways. You can give them an IQ test and you can find that their mind is only that big. Or you can have a little personal offense come up and they talk about it. And when you go ask them, why were you talking about it? Well, it's the truth. Oh, please. How do you argue with dumb? Who cares if it's true? You have used an event in another person's life to assassinate its reputation before other people. It doesn't matter if it's true. Why are you spreading it? There's only one, one reason you want to tell somebody else. Because you want to run that other man's character down. That's the only reason. You're a murderer. You will be held accountable for the sixth commandment when you stand before the Lord Jesus Christ. Thou shalt not kill. That is what you're guilty of. If you're not glorious enough to overlook an offense, here's how you do it. You tell him and him alone, and hopefully he'll hear you. He can replace the jigsaw if you're all bent into shape over your $19 special tool. He can replace it for you, and both brothers can be happy. Now, what if he doesn't listen to you? What if he says, hey, that's just a cost of loaning stuff, buddy. You loaned it to me, and I used it. My kids got a hold of it. I have kids, you have kids, you know things like that happen. They rip the power cord off it. Now what's your problem? What are you getting bent out of shape over this for? It's just a jigsaw. You replaced it. It didn't work very well anyway. In fact, I had to borrow another one because it was a piece of junk. You know, there are people with evil spirits that talk like that. But here, let's say, that we, let's say you run into one of those. We have a way to handle them. Verse 16, if he will not hear thee, you go and say, you know, please. I took good care of that, and it's bothering me. Would you replace it because you tore the power cord off it, but he won't hear you. If he will not hear thee, then take with thee one or two more, that in the mouth of two or three witnesses every word may be established. If you don't have witnesses to it, then you don't have a case, and you've got to overlook it. The only way you can have witnesses is not because you go to two brothers and say, well, you come and help me because this brother ripped the power cord off my jigsaw. How can those two? Those aren't witnesses. Those are just two accomplices in tail-bearing, backbiting, and whispering. 
you have to have witnesses. You have to have two others that can verify what was done and said. So let's say you've got two. You've got two others that saw the power cord and they saw the kids twirling it around thinking that it was a sling. And finally the power cord came off it. So you've got two brothers. And so you go in the mouth of two or three witnesses. Every word may be established, but he won't hear them either. So we come to step three of solving matters. And if he shall neglect to hear them, that's three standing there, two or three, tell it unto the church. So the next step would be, it's brought up here in the pulpit, in front of the assembly. The whole church is called together, and we bring up this brother, loaned his jigsaw to this brother. When it was returned, the power cord was ripped off. This brother's children did it. He's refusing to replace the jigsaw, which this brother would like done. And we've got these two brothers that are going to testify about this fantastic event that occurred this past month. And the Lord sits in heaven, looking down on his pitiful little people, his little sheep. And so does every righteous man to have to go through such a thing. But then the church hears the story that is confirmed in the mouth of two or three witnesses. And their spokesman of the church turns to the man and says, replace the jigsaw. This is ridiculous. Replace the jigsaw. But if he neglect to hear the church, let him be unto thee as an heathen man and a publican. If it reaches that point, and this man in his arrogant pride, selfishness, rebellion, hate, and murder will not replace the jigsaw, will not listen to the church, he is thrown out for a major offense against God. Right. Let him be unto thee as a heathen man and a publican. That original party that just tried to ask for his jigsaw to be replaced has followed through the proper procedure, and now he has the right, the godly right, to treat that man as a heathen man and a publican, a total outsider from the religion of Jesus Christ. Verily I say unto you, whatsoever ye, now that's plural, whatsoever ye shall bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatsoever ye shall loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Whatever judgment the church comes up with in matters like that, the God in heaven defends them and will hold the person accountable. When a church with good conscience and in scriptural fairness, follows the orderly procedure of God's word, the Lord God himself will defend the judgment. Right. Whatever is loosed, you don't have to replace it. It's too minor to even worry about. So we tell the brother, forget it. You pressed a cause too far. It's not worth it. And brethren, that judgment will be made by a single, by a simple majority. That'll be made by a simple majority, and as soon as the simple majority has chosen what is the rule of judgment, the rest of the church is going to agree with it in a unanimous vote, or you will not be listening to the voice of the church, and you will go out as well. Right. Does everybody understand how that would work? Yeah. That is the only way that makes sense in the light of this passage. If you don't like the judgment of the church by a simple majority, then that's too bad. You've got a problem with the church and with the Lord himself, and you can go out and join the man on the outside. Paul says in verse 6, But brother goeth the law with brother, and that before the unbelievers. He says in verse 7, Now therefore... There is utterly a fault among you because ye go to law one with another. Now, here is the better way of solving these differences, and I love this. There's a better way. Do you, know, do you know when Paul's dealing with the offices of the church in 1 Corinthians 12, he says, yet show I unto you a more excellent way? There is a more excellent way to serve, and here it is right here. Why do ye not rather take wrong? Now, wouldn't that be interesting? 
Why do you not take wrong? Just go ahead and be wronged. Swallow the 19 bucks and go buy yourself another cheap jigsaw. Black and Decker. Be about 19 bucks. Have they ever had a tool above 19 bucks? Why do you not rather suffer yourselves to be defrauded? Why don't you suffer yourselves to be defrauded? Why don't you let other people defraud you? Now that's what I'm going to preach on. You know what my text for pride is tonight? That right there. Do you know what makes people fight? It ain't money, and it ain't principle. Now, they're getting close because they like things that start with P. When they say principle, whenever you hear a man say it's for principle, it's because he's almost to choke out the real word, but he couldn't quite do it because the real issue is pride. The book of Proverbs tells us repeatedly that it is pride that causes men to fight. When you would have a struggle over a $19 jigsaw, it isn't principle, it's pride. You can call it principle, we'll all tell you the truth. It's pride. Pride causes fighting. This is the religion of Jesus Christ. Suffer your, Why do you not rather take wrong? Why do you not rather suffer yourselves to be defrauded? Instead of making an issue out of these little dinky things, just forget them. Now, what's my favorite verse on doing this? Does anybody know? Have you heard anything over the 20 years I've preached to you with a few years of sabbatical in there? Do you remember? It's in the book of Proverbs. It's in chapter 19, it's verse 11, and it says, The discretion of a man deferreth his anger, and it is his glory to prosecute an offense. No, to over to pass over a transgression. That's a glorious man. Now I know I sound so harsh, but do you know why I'm harsh? Because there are people with little minds, little souls, and that little soul isn't exactly white. As we heard prayed this morning, it's black because it's got hatred in it and bitterness for these little tiny offenses that don't mean a thing to anyone, especially God. And the reason I'm, I'm so worked up about this is the glory of the New Testament and of truly knowing Christ is you'd forget all the little offenses because how many has he forgotten and forgiven you for? There is such a statement. Why do... See, that's taking it to a different level. His first six verses were, there is an orderly way in which you can do this. You don't have to go to small claims court. The church should be able to figure it out in some of these smallest matters. But then he says, there's a better way. Why do you not just forget it? Forget it. You know, I'm going to tell you something about the Bible. Do you know that it says in numerous places that when somebody wrongs you and you're just able to forget it? Guess what reward you're going to get? When you do something against God, he's just going to forget it too. With the measure that you mete out judgment for these ridiculous little things on other people, that's the measure of mercy God's going to show you. If you go home and rail on somebody in your vehicle in front of your children, if you prosecute them and push them and hold bitterness, God is going to do all those things to you. Is there any wonder why some people are blessed and others are not? All other things being equal? Do you know what? If there's a side to err on, do you want to err on the side of principle or on the side of mercy? Mercy. Mercy. Lord, help us. Is there even a question in your mind? I almost want to give you my jigsaw so that you can rip the power cord off so that I can overlook it. And I I hope that you're thinking the same thing because that's how you earn the mercy of God. You can earn practical mercy in your life by showing mercy to others. Do you know what I've done? 
Verse 8. Nay, ye do wrong and defraud, and that your brethren. Look at the contrast. He's playing with the word defraud. In verse 7, he says, why don't you suffer yourself to be defrauded? When, you, when it's suffer, why don't you just let yourself get defrauded? But in verse 8 is, no, instead of doing that, you defraud somebody else. You know, by forcing a man to, re- to replace your jigsaw when it's not a very big matter is defrauding him because that is just ridiculous. These people were prosecuting each other in small claims court for little ridiculous things. Instead of suffering yourself to be defrauded, you're defrauding and you're doing it to brethren. Despicable. That's what the eight verses mean in 1 Corinthians 6. Verses 9 through 11 get their attention because he's about to transition into another sin. And he says, no one is going to heaven that has any of these sins unpaid for by Jesus Christ. He starts. He has one sentence in verses 9 and 10. It starts out by saying you're not going to heaven, and it ends by saying you're not going to heaven because it's talking about your inheritance in the kingdom of God. This is not church membership. That is such a travesty of scriptural interpretation to think that this verse is talking about church membership. This is inheriting the kingdom of God in heaven, a future event. These people were already church members. This is heaven. He's trying to get their attention Don't you know that this kind of extortion that you're practicing in other church members is wrong? And he runs through a short list. Remember, he had a short list in chapter 5 that had the word such. He has a short list here that has the word such. And it's all this this big category of sins that are not going to be allowed into heaven. So if you want to start living like you belong in heaven, these sins can't exist in your life. Are you with me on that? that, It's that simple. What, What is the list? Be not deceived. Do you know why he has to put that in there? Because Corinth looked like America in 2004. Corinth was a lascivious, ungodly, profane, effeminate, luxurious city. It's a perfect book for us to read and study. Because that's the nature of America today. So he says, be not deceived. Just because the world is doing these things, don't be deceived. These things aren't getting into heaven. The world may allow them. You know, now it's just called cash. When was the last time you read fornication in the newspaper? Help me. Last time you read the word fornication in the newspaper? You know, it's just called casual sex now. The wickedness of our nation. Be not deceived. They may allow it, but the kingdom of God doesn't allow it. And if you want to start living like you belong there, you can't have these things in your life. Fornication a big broad category of sexual sin where you have sex with someone you're not married to. Idolaters. You worship another god or an image or likeness of another god or an image or a likeness of the true god himself. Idolatry. Adulterers. You break a marriage covenant, either your own or someone else's, by having sex with someone you're not married to and one or both of the parties is married. Nor effeminate. A luxurious, sissified, womanly man who indulges himself too much and doesn't live like a man. He might be a cross-dresser, but that would be an extreme. We could exclude before we got to a cross-dresser. But these were people that lived in Corinth at that time, effeminate, a luxurious lifestyle of self-indulgence that makes a man like a woman. Nor abusers of themselves with mankind, one of Scripture's gentle little expressions to describe homosexuals. Abusers of themselves with mankind. North, I'll just leave that one right there. Nor thieves, violating the property rights of other people or taking things that do not belong to you. 
nor covetous, discontent greed for something that you do not have, nor drunkards drinking too much until you lose your sense of right judgment given your role in life, which means it varies, doesn't it? Nor revilers using, using strong, railing language on someone as a reviler. You revile someone by using by name-calling. Nor extortioners using excessive force to get someone to do something they didn't really want to do, and you're taking advantage of them, shall inherit the kingdom of God. There's a list of sins. That's just a partial list. And look what it says, and such were some of you, you Corinthians, among the Corinthian church, there were some abusers of themselves with mankind. There were some effeminate men, but they'd been converted because look at what the apostle Paul writes. And such were some of you, but ye are washed. You know, the blood of Jesus Christ washes us from all sin. You know, we, we, could, take, we could take an abuser of himself with mankind in here as fast as anyone. Why would it make any difference? The Lord doesn't know the difference. If one, rep- if one was a public sodomite, and we knew about it, but he repented on the grounds in which we take everyone else, we'd take him right in. The Corinthian church did. And brethren, listen, with the state of this country, it'll happen one of these days. It could very well happen. It's not the unpardonable sin, even though you may want to think so, even though I may be tempted to think so. But it isn't. It's just a sin. Every one of us have sins, and any single, any single one of them is enough to send our souls to hell. We will take them in, just like they did at Corinth. Such were some of you, but ye are washed. The blood of Jesus Christ washes us that sin away legally, and the washing of regeneration of the Holy Spirit washes us away vitally so that we have a new man. But ye are sanctified. Sanctified is to make someone holy. The blood of Christ made us holy, and so does the work of the Holy Spirit. But ye are justified. That is, just as if I had never sinned before God, and just as if I had lived the perfect life of Christ before God. By the work of Jesus Christ. These Corinthians were sinners just like that list. But then the Lord Jesus Christ saved them in that glorious way. All things are lawful unto me. The last section. Since I preached it, since there's an outline, we're going to go very fast. All things are lawful unto me, but all things are not expedient. The rule in Corinth was, everything's lawful. Paul's rule was, even things God hasn't forbidden. I'm going to be very careful with them lest I offend my God or move in the direction of sin. All things are lawful, but all things are not expedient. There are things that God allows. For instance, a television is something that is allowable. All it is is an electrical box. But if you're truly seeking the Lord, it's not very allowable to you because it's not expedient. It's not the best thing to help you on your way to heaven. So the apostle would say, while a television is allowable, I'm not going to have one because it's not expedient. And I think some of us would say that right along with him. Amen, Brother Paul. He put away his television. Well, you know what I mean. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be brought under the power of any. I will not let anything get such a control of me that I have to have it. You know, I usually mention this in light of cigarette smoking, alcohol, or other things that you get obsessed with or addicted to where you can't lay them down. Why have you let anything get the power of you where you can't say no to it? You've become its slave. And the Lord doesn't want us a slave to anything except to Him. No matter what it is. No matter whether it's some radio program that you just have to listen to every day, or some serial on television, or some magazine that you think you can't live without. 
If it has the power over you, you know one way to find out if it's got the power over you? Get rid of it for six months. If you get rid of it for six months, we're all believers that it doesn't have power over you. Meats for the belly and the belly for meats. Now that's a nice little mantra of Corinth. You know, let's eat, drink, and be merry. Let's enjoy life. Hey, God made meats and God made my belly. My belly likes meats and there's plenty of meat in Corinth. Can't we just eat? There's no restriction on it. God made my belly and God made meats. The meats for the belly and the belly for meats. Like, why are you trying to restrict me with this general rule that I ought to only do those things that are expedient and that I don't get into the power of anything? God made meat and he made my belly. They're made for each other. What's wrong with my eating? Well, I preached on gluttony, so you're going to have to go back and look at that message on gluttony because there is a limitation. And what the, what the Apostle Paul says right here, because God's going to destroy both of them. There is a limit on how you handle both of them. There are things more important than the, the belly and meats, and indulging yourself too much in eating will lead to other problems in your life. Which I'm, I'm getting off the subject, but just for 30 seconds. If you indulge yourself in eating without restraint... It leads to a lascivious and a broken down life of not having self-discipline. It's just a, it's a, it's a rule of life and it's a rule of the Bible. Solomon tried to warn his son, don't go around with wine bibbers, drunkards, and gluttons because it's going to bring you to poverty. Because see, once, once a man gives into that, then he doesn't like to get up in the morning because he's got a hangover and he feels, he feels pretty rotten. He doesn't want to go to work. He can't work as hard. It leads to other sins because it's a breakdown in self-discipline. The, the, men, the men in history who have tried to follow the Lord very closely, when you look at their resolutions, and I am referring to Jonathan Edwards right now, several of his resolutions will be about eating. Because to eat too much dulls you. What do you, what do you want to do after a huge meal? Sleep. Sleep. And he knew that was wasting time. Now, he, he went to bed, but to indulge yourself in too big of a meal puts you to sleep. Anyway, Paul moves on from that because while they were talking about eating meat, you know, that's, eating meat is allowable. It's a matter of liberty. But even then, you shouldn't do it, if it unless it's expedient. But then he moves into a real problem that was in Corinth. And it was a problem in all the New Testament because they had a system of morality like we have in America. Fornication is allowable. Casual sex is okay. How do I know that was true? Because when the, all the elders and apostles sat in Acts chapter 15 at the Council of Jerusalem, what was the single matter of morality that came up? Fornication. They had four rules for the Gentiles. You know, and it had to do with eating meat and off, meat offered to idols. But the one that had to do with morality and social mores and customs was fornication. It was a real problem. It's a real problem in our nation. And so the apostle is now going to give us some rules to keep us from committing fornication. Now, the body is not for fornication. The body might be made for meat. The body might need meat to have strength and to preserve its it's protein stores so that you can have a strong body to be able to work hard. That's true. But the body is not made for fornication. You do not need fornication like you need meat. There is no need for that. Now, the body is not for fornication but for the Lord and the Lord for the body, and that is how we ought to take care of these things is they are the Lord's, and how can we make them efficient and squeeze the most out of them for the glory of God and not sin with them? That's verse 13. See, the Lord's for the body. He created the body. He preserves the body. He heals the body. And as we're about to learn, he redeemed your body. Amen. You are a three-part being, and Jesus Christ redeemed all parts of you. 
Verse 14, And God hath both raised up the Lord, and will also raise up us by his own power. The Lord God raised up the body of Jesus Christ. You know, when Jesus Christ's body was laid in the tomb, where was the spirit of Jesus Christ? In heaven. Because he said to the thief, This day thou shalt be with me in paradise. But his body was there. But now, was God happy because he had Jesus Christ there in spirit? In heaven, was that enough? Or was Jesus incomplete without his body? He was incomplete. So the body was raised, and that's what verse 14 is saying. God raised up the body of the Lord Jesus Christ. He's going to raise up our bodies. Therefore, our bodies are very important things, and we want to use them in a way that pleases the Lord. Verse 15. Know ye not that your bodies are the members of Christ? Here's a second argument. Or a third, if you really want to get precise and go into the stuff that, I haven't, that I'm not giving you verbally, that's in the outline. And I wish you would look at them from time to time. I spend, I spend a whole lot more time working the outline up than I do preaching it to you. And there's more material there than I give you. But we have another argument. And the argument now in verse 15 is your bodies are the members of Christ. Jesus Christ paid for your body. He, he has adopted all of us, body, soul, and spirit. And since our bodies are members of Christ, why in the world would you want to take a member of Christ and join it to a slut, a whore, or a, a sinner? Why would you want to take that body that belongs to Jesus Christ, to which he is very closely connected, and attach it in a sinful relationship? You're attaching a part of Jesus to that person that you're having sex with. That's what he's saying in verse 15. Know ye not that your bodies are the members of Christ? That's basic knowledge that we should all understand. Our bodies are owned by Jesus Christ. Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them the members of an harlot? Should I take part of Christ and join him to a harlot in sex? God forbid. Another argument. What? Know ye not that he which is joined to an harlot is one body? For two, saith he, shall be one flesh. See, he's jumping back to Genesis and pointing out that when two people come together in sex, two bodies become one. If we do that with someone in an unlawful relationship, we are taking Christ and joining them to that harlot. Verse 17. But he that is joined unto the Lord is one spirit. By the purchase of our bodies and spirits and souls, we are brought into a tight relationship by our new man, where we are one spirit with the Lord. And to be in one spirit is far more important than to be one body with someone. To be of one spirit with the Lord, Jesus Christ, and to have our spirits 24-7 joined to him is far superior to a few minutes of having your body coupled with some other body. Another argument to stay away from fornication because it's a unique kind of a sin in that it takes a member of Christ and joins it to another sinner. Verse 18, flee fornication. Flee fornication. You know, some temptations you can fight. Other temptations you'd better flee. This temptation, you better flee. Because if you stay around it, you're going down. Joseph understood this verse, didn't he? Did, did our brother Joseph understand the first two words of verse 18 of 1 Corinthians 6? Amen. Did he stay in reason with Mrs. Potiphar? Nope. Did he say, well, I'll just kiss her. I'll just kiss her and see if that'll make her happy. Oh, listen, I've heard them all brothers and I've said a few haven't I but God's truth 
is God's truth. Amen. And it says flee fornication. Amen. None. Second Timothy 2.22. Flee youthful lust. Joseph did it. Where was David? David was laying in bed one night. He should have been out in the battlefield with his men. But he's laying in bed and he's bored and he's let his mind run around too much. And he's bored and he gets up out of his bed and he goes for a walk. Instead of, and he sees her. He see, he should have fled to have been the battlefield. He should have fled that possibility at night because that's when people bathe by staying in bed. And he should have fled when he saw her. He didn't flee. He didn't flee. He didn't flee. Samson, the first time when he said, if you'll bind me with seven new ropes, I'll be like another man. And then she, she makes love to him and he's sound asleep on her lap and he wakes up bound with seven new ropes. When he woke up and snapped those ropes like they were threads, what should the man have done? Okay. Flee. He said to himself, well, I'll just keep lying to her. She won't get the better of me because I'll just lie to her. You want to bet? What does the book of Proverbs tell us? That a whore can ta- has taken down a wounded many strong men. Amen. And Samson is put in the Bible for a purpose. He was the strongest man. And all boys ought to be taught about Samson, that he was unable to resist the flattery of a strange woman. They ought to be taught that Joseph is greater than David. Joseph is a greater hero than David because Joseph beat a bigger giant. Goliath was only 9-9. Mrs. Potiphar was 12-12. And Joseph whipped her. And he didn't even need a sling. He ran. And he didn't care that he was falsely accused of rape, nor did he care that he was convicted of rape, nor did he care that he was put in prison. He did what was right, and the Lord blessed him. And the Lord was with him. Flee fornication. Every sin that a man doeth is without his body. The rest of the things you commit sin with that aren't sexual are outside your body. You know, you're doing something with your hand with something outside your body. But sex is different because you couple your body with another body, and that is, makes that sin unique. It doesn't mean that it's worse. It means that it's different. And so the, the apostle is warning here, that particular sin brings a member of Christ into union with the harlot. He that committeth fornication sinneth against his own body by coupling your body with the body of a sinner. What? Another question. Here's basic knowledge to follow. Know ye not that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost? which is in you, which ye have of God, and ye are not your own. How, how can we hardly understand that verse? I open my Bible, the first page, and it tells me the Spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters. Does it tell me that in verse 2 of Genesis 1? Where is that Spirit of God right now? He's inside us. Here's a fourth reason against fornication. You have the Spirit of God inside you. Are you going to go take your body and force the Spirit of God to be in bed with a sinner? You have the Spirit inside you. Do you want to offend that Spirit so grossly? Another reason against fornication. What? Know ye not that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost which is in you, which ye have of God, and ye are not your own. Your body is not yours. You know, this nation thinks your body is so much yours that a woman can abort an unborn baby inside her. Do you know how far the Bible goes in, in opposition to that statement? You can't even have the sex that results in the baby that you think is your body. Because God has a right to control your body and how you use it. He is in it. He created it. He redeemed it. 
it is a member of Christ, and there are four reasons, brethren, why your body is not yours. You better treat your body the way God tells you to treat it. And the things you do with your body should line up with the Word of God, and you're going to have to look at an outline entitled, Your Body is the Lord's, which has that long list on six pages of different things that men do with bodies today that are offensive to God, like burning them up at death. We bury the body because the body is special to God. We're not pagans that cremate. Remember, I went over all those things for you. God made every little girl's body a virgin, and it better be kept that way for her husband. It is not your own. It is not yours to give away at any time, under any circumstances, until God tells you to give it away in marriage to a man who is in the Lord, on fire for Jesus Christ, and is going to lead you in holiness for all the rest of the days of your life. Then you can give it to him. And only then. Remember that list we went through? Because the body is the Lord's. Last verse. For ye are bought with a price. What is that price? The Son of God came and died and gave his blood, the precious blood of Christ. We have been bought. We have been bought body, soul, and spirit. These bodies are the Lord's. He's going to glorify them one day soon. Do you know what we're waiting for? In Romans 8.23, there's a special verse that says, we are waiting for our adoption. We're waiting for our redemption. We're waiting for our redemption. Now, now listen, if you didn't know the five phases, what would happen when you ran into Romans 8.23? You'd get real confused that the Apostle Paul was still waiting for his redemption. To wit, I'm thankful that the Apostle helps us out. Sometimes the Apostle tells us what he means. I wish he did it all the time. But that's why we study. The, re- the adoption, the redemption of our bodies. We're waiting for an adoption, which is the redemption of our bodies. Because I'm going to die soon, be dropped in a grave, my body's going to corrupt, but I'm still waiting. I'm still waiting because God's going to come back and redeem that body. Right. He is going to pull that body out of the grave, put it back together, glorify it, and it's going to be a spiritual body forever in heaven. We have been bought with a price. You have been bought, every single bit of you, and you are the Lord's, and you don't have a right to do anything with yourself that God has not given you permission to do. Right? right? Do we all love this verse? Mm-hmm. This is the verse we ought to take home from this message from Amen. 1 Corinthians 6. Ye are bought with a price, therefore. Here's the effect that it ought to have on us. Glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are, both of them, God's. Amen. Glorify him. Everything we choose to do with our bodies, let's glorify God with them. Everything we choose to do with our spirits, our thoughts, our joy, our emotions, everything inside us, let's do it to the glory of God because both have been bought by the Lord Jesus Christ. We are all his. We are not our own. We are his. Let's live like it. May Jesus Christ bless the preaching of his word.